Well, I, I did a podcast a couple of days ago where I was criticizing um, some of these uh, atheists, these irreligious, for uh, being, well, baseless, groundless in their uh, arguments. And uh, I mentioned I was going to read some more, so I did. Uh, some more Richard Dawkins, some Sam Harris, even Christopher Hitchens. And what shocks me, particularly Dawkins, Sam Harris is an obvious failure of, of logic, but Dawkins is so highly regarded, but absolutely, okay, maybe not absolutely everything, but the vast majority of his arguments are just baseless, groundless, right? He'll argue that um, religion's a problem because of extremists, and then he'll talk about extremism, but I can make the same argument about these extremist atheists, these anti-humanists, these anti-natalists, just as bad. And he proceeds to talk about how how uh, how much problems there are in religion and say, well, nobody is, is the problem. I've been accused of being a fundamentalist. This is Dawkins. I've been accused of being a fundamentalist, but oh no, I'm not threatening to kill everybody that, well, I'm sorry to say you may not uh, counsel people to kill religious, but Sam Harris does. He's actually uh, advocated for nuking the Middle East when, sadly, there's millions of wonderful people in the Middle East and maybe a few thousand uh, religious zealots, but there's also just as many secular zealots in the Middle East. So, but, uh, yeah. So the emperor's not only do they have no clothes, but they're completely baseless. Now, they go around thinking they're based, as the kids like to say. But it's a joke. Every one of their arguments are just cope. It almost seems like, especially Dawkins and Sam Harris, when you read, like at least Christopher Hitchens seems to be, uh, you know, comfortable not believing for certain in any God and, and being mostly certain there isn't one. But when it comes to Sam Harris and Dawkins, they just utter failures. They just seem to be trying to convince themselves that there isn't a God because they don't want to believe, but they do, either because they've raised to believe or because of some pretty tangible arguments, right? Uh, the uh, uh, Copenhagen, um, I guess you could call it the quandary even, the observer uh, quandary, this idea that just by being present, we influence the outcome. I mean, and then uh, was it Einstein who originally wrote about uh, uh, spooky action at a distance, which he calls spooky. Anyways, it's this idea that uh, completely unconnected uh, particles in space can actually be connected. Right? But no, let's ignore all that. And of course, you know, he argues about evolution and talks about the Scopes trial. And But literally, religion has evolved. He talks about, oh, religion isn't evolved. Well, they have, actually, because as far as I know, most of them are fine with the idea of evolution. It has to do with what he won't argue. They believe it's a first cause, right? Panentheism, Spinoza, Emerson, the idea of, 
sure, if you want to believe we evolved out of a primordial ooze, but who put the primordial ooze? Who gave it the, what would you call it, uh, the lottery? But at the same time, the same argument can be made of many of these uh, religious zealots. But I liken it to everyone's, everything that uh, Dawkins said that we had to worry about, uh, about with uh, religious fundamentalists, everything that that book that I mentioned before, Jesus uh, and John Wayne, uh, everything that these uh, secular, irreligious uh, atheists uh, warn us about being a risk because of religion, what has come to pass is actually these secular toxic atheists that have caused the problem. This movement to a lack of identity. And I'm not talking about identity politics. I'm talking about truly, you need to find for yourself who and what you are, but not at the expense of anyone else. Right? I've mentioned this, Martin Buber's I and thou can never be an I and an it. And that's what Dawkins and Harris and many of these religious people as well fail at. The great book that just came out recently that I don't know why it wasn't around for the longest time, but it was the final book uh, written by Martin Luther King Jr. And in it, not only does he remind us that it's about humanity, not about race, but in the end, he agrees with me where the real problem is poverty, either poverty of knowledge, poverty of, of wealth, uh, poverty of worth, poverty of hope, you name it. Poverty of meaning, poverty of creation, poverty, poverty of, of just being seen. As W.E.B. Du, du Bois said, this double consciousness, when you see yourself as a human being, but other people treat you as less, that's where the problem is. And that exists within the Bible. I mean, I could tell you, I don't know how many examples, right? Paul creating his own form of a religion based on what he calls Christianity, when in reality, the original sect carried on after Jesus's life, uh, headed by his brother James, was very much a sect of, of Judaism. It wasn't its own thing. Most of what we would attribute to Christianity as different than Judaism uh, really comes from one person, Paul, who... I don't know. Here's some stories for you. He said he was a Pharisee. He said he was a born Jew, but based on scholarship, he doesn't seem to have had, uh, you know, a very good understanding of Jewish law. Worse yet, doesn't seem to have uh, spoken Hebrew, right? Because if he was a Pharisee, why would he be reading scripture in Greek? Why would he be relying on Greek translations when? Flawed or not, which we know they were flawed, but flawed or not, why? If you can read Hebrew, why would you? I mean, that's like me. If I can read French, why would I read an English translation of, say, Camus? Right? Why? Or if for Nietzsche, for example, I was speaking to a friend of mine. I mean, if you could speak German, why would you read the English translation? unless you want to see what they did wrong with the translations. So uh, what began is just a research 
for what the true teachings of Christ was, because I've told you before, uh, Tolstoy taught something a little different from what was uh, regarded as uh, the prevailing opinion, and he was excommunicated for that. Why? Because he felt, you know, that there's no justification for for murder. There's no justi- justification for being being evil. And it inspired Gandhi for his nonviolent movement. So I mean, I think it's beautiful because. Carl Jung, Swami Vivekananda, both uh, terribly inspired by the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. In that book, you can read it. It's the Greek idea of know thyself, nothisota. I mean, if you take out the dialogue and do exactly what Jung did, he just changed who was speaking to him. He changed it to uh, um, Philemon instead of Christ. But it's the same idea. You can make it uh, the Hamburglar if you want. The discussion doesn't change. It's talking about managing yourself, your expectations, your actions, your reactions. And that's how you manage our experience. Right? I was talking to a young lad who for some reason believes that we can transcend suffering. When in reality, nothing and no one has ever been able to do that, not even the teachers of many of these philosophies. Right? But in reality, this is what I'm getting at here. When you look at the secular and the irreligious, what they're actually doing is increasing their audience's uh, portion of suffering rather than relieving it. And the same can be said about many of these religions where they require you to believe in the reincarnation and the and the, the deification of Christ, when for me, Christ dying uh, in that situation is so much more uh, profound. If he knew or didn't know, what have you? If he if he was pretty certain that he was going to die, his suffering uh, was not for any particular reason. And I think we can see that in the Bible because he. One of his last words is, why have you forsaken me, my father? Well, yeah, exactly. That, to me, uh, speaks volumes. Whereas someone dying and, oh, well, I'll be back in three days. No worries. Right? And that same idea that, uh, you know, the temple will be uh, destroyed, but uh, will will be rebuilt in three days. I mean, I argue that could very easily be the community, the ecclesia, the church, the group of like-minded individuals. Three days doesn't seem like a lot for uh, for grieving, but uh, but finding purpose to move forward is an important thing. Arguably, that could be the lesson being taught. I've talked about it in Sanskrit. Uh, you don't have to believe in walking on water or walking through walls or not being or being able to hold your breath for a week on end. These great powers, Siddhi, they're not super powers, supra normal powers. If you can stay calm and focused in the middle of an emergency, that will seem like a superpower to most people. Right? If you can overcome your baser desires for, you know, what may come, or even in a recent book talking about how to uh, think critically, how to think clearly, uh, talking about how few people will 
uh, deny immediate reward for uh, a reward in the future. That's arguably the same idea, right? So here I sit listening to both sides and I've argued that it's 80% in the middle that actually needs the sufficiency of, of meaning, of hope, of value, of creation but don't want to hear about some sky daddy or don't want to hear about, no, there's nothing to us, but, but us. And when we die, we're just dirt. That just doesn't seem to fit on either end, right? There's no certainty of a God. I've talked about tetralemma, right? Uh, it may be a God. It may not be. It may be us. It may be something else, or it may be beyond our comprehension. So we can't know anything for sure whether something exists beyond us or not. But certainly all the evidence would point to the fact that, no, there's no certainty for a power beyond ourselves, but there most certainly is proof of a power greater than ourselves. Meaning when we stop um, losing faith in our potential, as Nietzsche said, the reason why we attribute uh, these great accomplishments and these wonderful ideas to a power greater than ourselves, an external power is what I mean, is because we don't have the faith in ourselves that we deserve. I've talked about this before, great accomplishment or great harvest in the ancient Chinese uh, oracle bone scripts is a combination of the character of great, which is the character for person with their uh, arms held wide, great, uh, and then the character for the moon and a hand reaching to grasp said moon. Those characters together represent great accomplishment, great harvest. And, and moonshot goals in our modern, um, modern coinage or modern, uh, what would you call it, uh, colloquial. So here's what I'm getting at. I mean, there's books on no end talking about these evangelical Christians and these crystal fascists being the problem going forward. But all I'm seeing is the real problem are these anarcho-fascists, these uh, atheist fascists, these uh, secular fascists, these anti-irreligious, whatever you'd want to call them. The toxicity lies on both sides, but what has really changed society for the worst in the last 10 years is this embrace of atheism and, and, and toxic secular perspective, right? We've missed the point, right? We've lost the plot, right? Here in Ontario, we've called to separate church and state, especially in school, but it, there's a clear mandate that we're still supposed to be teaching this morality. And I don't know if I'd agree with Christians that would argue that without the religion, you can't teach the morality. I think that's wrong. I think morality comes from mores. I've talked about this before. And when we stop telling our kids to stop dressing like absolute morons, that allows other people to continue to walk around like complete and utter morons. Right? I mean, putting a hundred holes in your face that was cool 30, 40 years ago when it made you a rebel. But as one comedian said, no millennial with a sleeve of tattoos is going to have me quaking in my boots. But if I run into an 80-year-old covered in tattoos, 
Well, you know that guy has seen some snakes. Right? So we've actually experienced what uh, Carl Jung called an antidromia, this uh, reversion to the opposite, right? Uh, where we had these uh, extremists, zealous religious people pushing us uh, too hard. And as a result, the pendulum swung all the, the other way, the, to, to the opposite, and, and it's given us these secular, nihilist, toxic atheists that are arguably worse, right? Because as I say, every once in a while I run into some weirdos. Like when I was giving tours at the Buddhist temple slash museum, I saw hundreds of people, sometimes a day, the vast majority of them were wonderful people. Wonderful people. Uh, and yes, you're right. There were some seriously weird people. I mean, there was this one lady uh, who proceeded to give us uh, a lecture on uh, how we needed to be careful with the books and show them, you know, great respect, uh, right? Uh, you know, because there's a, you know, you don't want to destroy their holy books, as you might call it, right? Again, another colloquial expression. Meanwhile, the books that she carried around look like she stores them three feet underground. They were that dirty and dog-eared and torn and horribly treated and proceeded to tell us that, uh, you know, you could ask for anything, riches and fame. But that's just one or two or three out of the thousands of people that I saw come through that that complex and from around the world, from every culture, from every language. They're wonderful, wonderful people. I mean, I only ran into a couple of negative experiences. Uh, in fact, most of them were positive. I remember, I've talked about this before. I remember this one uh, lovely lady who uh, went on the tour and uh, I guess she was a, a secular uh, Indian um, because she's like, well, what can I put in my house, right? To, uh, to, I don't, I can't remember exactly the verbiage, whether it was to attract positive energy or to eliminate negative, what have you. And I said, there's nothing. And she said, no, no, like something I can put in the house or, I'm like, nothing, there's nothing. I said, the only thing you can do, it's within you, right? To manage that. And it took a couple of times explaining that to her and the people around, uh, were, were pretty chuffed about that answer it took her a little while to understand, and I'm not even sure if she understood what I meant. I mean, that's that's what we're teaching here. We're not teaching to put up a talisman that'll help you eliminate the negative energy in your house. No, you are the one responsible for, for reducing and, and hopefully eliminating that negative energy in the house. Um, and I had just the one negative uh, experience. I had a young lady come in. And uh, she was walking around to the different statues. And we had quite a collection of statues, uh, some of them thousands of years old. And she proceeded to start touching them all. And so I said, you know, please uh, don't touch the statues. They don't want anyone touching the statues. And she got really upset with me and said, well, that's a sign of respect. You know, and I said, no, I understand, you know, in India, that's, you know, a sign of respect. But this is a Chinese temple. And they have specifically requested that nobody touch the statues. And so I started following her around because she wouldn't listen to me. And then she got all upset. Oh, I, you can't believe you're following me around. And I said, I'm sorry, but these are the rules. And I tried to be as nice as possible. If it were me, normally I would have, you know, kicked her out, 
put her out on her ear because, you know, after she bopped, but that was me, right? I openly admit uh, I'm a, a tantric Buddhist because I need to restrain that, uh, that, uh, that Durga that's inside of me, the darkness, right? Because uh, <laughs> I do not suffer fools well, but that sometimes borders on uh, the mean. Yeah, but my best experience was I was just alone in the museum one afternoon, one morning. I can't remember. I think it was morning. I was just there by myself and somebody arrived. Seemed like something of a big deal because there was, you know, more than one person. But then they left, um, except for the one gentleman who was dressed up all in robes I'm pretty sure he's a Hare Krishna or, or one of those Iskan, um, very well-known practitioner because his his uh, his escort who was there as well uh, mentioned something along that line. But he didn't stay. The actual guy said he wanted this monk or whatever you'd call him. I guess I'd call him a Swami. Uh, wanted to come in by himself and look around by himself. And I said the same thing. I said, by all means, you can go look around. But he actually wanted to interact. And so we started talking. And the most profound thing that's ever happened to me in, in, in one, of these, uh, one of these tours, it was just him and I. And so he asked me for what is the difference between, uh, you know, Vedanta, Buddhism, and right from my perspective. And I said, well, it's the Atman, right? The Buddhists um, don't believe in the Atman. And so his response was, hmm. Right? He didn't try to argue. He didn't try to ask me, like, oh, do you see the problem with Buddhism there? Or, no, he just allowed that to sit. Now, I understood the complexity here because, again, the Buddhists, I've said this before, the Buddhists don't technically deny the Atman. They just explain what it is and, and how it influences us, a little bit different from the Vedanta. Same as I said, uh, Swami G out of New York once uh, gave a story about his guru or his guru's guru. When he was asked about Vedanta, he said, well, essentially Vedanta is Buddhism with God. I would go one step further, as I said to the wife last night, and I'd say that Buddhism, uh, Vedanta, I apologize, Vedanta is Buddhism with a soul, right? A play on the idea of the Atman, the soul, but also with a soul you know, as the literature kind of, you know, allegory that, like I've said, Buddhism without sufficiency, if it doesn't explain that, I mean, you don't have to believe in, in a, a soul that transmutes, right? This is a separate podcast I thought I might do talking about the transmutation of the soul, how the soul itself evolves. But no, it's, it's important because I think the Buddhists risk nihilism, particularly in the West, when they don't teach what I've talked about as a tantric Buddhists, Buddhist, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth consciousness. Right? There's more to nirvana than is written in all your books. This idea that nirvana is a, a snuffing. So before that, there is a cessation. You cease to attach to this construct of the ego but your bundle of 
existence doesn't cease to exist. You just stop believing in something that doesn't, doesn't, didn't, doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden, like a, a movie or something, just everything disappears. No, it's, it's what we talked about. Worse than any other challenge is to walk uh, in the samsaric world as an enlightened being, because nothing will challenge uh, your transcendent nature than to be challenged by the transient nature of everyday life, meaning, you know, the taste, the sights, the smells, the desires, the thirsts of everyday life continue to challenge you, right? Because again, this idea of enlightenment, moksha, mukti, is a state and it's not a permanent one. So it's a state that we must nurture again and again and again, or risk a return or even like worse, uh, this is another experience that I had within a temple. I had a young lad who was considered a very uh, potential, uh, powerful little being within the Buddhist, one of these uh, Chinese Buddhist communities. And uh, he was a little problematic. He was a young, young dude, uh, you know, feeling an obligation to be a vegan and be a good Buddhist just because of his reputation within the community, rather than seeing it as, uh, you know, making your life better and, and working on yourself. But on one of the tours, I had someone ask me about, you know, these Azuras, these uh, Arhats, these individuals that seem from an outsider, they seem to be like a god or some sort of uh, idol. And so I explained that, no, actually, it's, it's not what you think. These Azuras, these gods, these demigods um, are not something to be envied. They're actually individuals who have achieved a certain level of progress, but have gotten so full of themselves or so uh, deluded or so uh, enthralled uh, by some of these uh, benefits. How many people have you known who will get into meditation and they become obsessed with, with it uh, uh, to the detriment of their practice itself, right? And so these Azuras have actually trapped themselves Right? They're, they're unable to continue to develop on the path to Buddha nature, if you want to see it that way or what have you, because of their ego or because of, uh, again, it's like, look at me. There's an expression that um, if someone claims to be an arhat, well, you know for, for a fact they are not an arhat because as soon as you claim um, these achievements, you have shown that, well, your ego your ego has just grown. Uh, you haven't, uh, you haven't grown in knowledge or wisdom, right? So here we are, these these atheists who, as I said, will say, "Well, you know, we all know that you know magical mystery things happen, but uh, you know, there's no God." It's like what? Like, do a little research and understand that there's a whole segment of the population that's laughing at both sides here. Right? Like Spinoza said, that I do believe, but my idea of God probably doesn't coincide with yours. Or Carl Sagan, when he's asked about God, his response was, What do you mean by God? Right? As, as I land, I love William James. He wrote an entire book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, but didn't have the balls to criticize his own pragmatism in his lifetime. It actually took 
uh, his work to be published posthumously, his um, radical empiricism, where you get him admitting that pragmatism works for the most part, but until we realize that there is something beyond the self. He called it like a, he didn't call it this, but I'll explain it as like a transpersonal consciousness, not unlike Jung's collective unconscious. Uh, He felt there was, I mean, honestly, it's not that different than the theosophist Blavatsky's idea of these, these great arhats, uh, you know, in the sky, these great Brahmins who, who uh, guide the, the world, right? These wise, uh, wise gurus that if you can transcend the ego and uh, transcend our uh, delusional experiences and tap into this ether sphere, you're able to get uh, knowledge from on high. I mean, the open problem of induction is, is really just us tapping into these wise, um, gurus that live in a in a between state when in reality i argue it's like what nietzsche said is is we have so little faith in our own potential that we attribute uh, great ideas uh, great solutions to uh, to something external when in reality once again it just takes well actually the way i explained it is we call it induction or uh, eureka in the Greek uh, story. So there was this gentleman, and uh, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. It doesn't matter. When you look up Eureka in the story, it'll tell you who. I can't remember. I'll just be guessing. Uh, he was trying to figure out how to weigh his uh, his uh, ruler's gold, is my understanding. There's so much of it. Just how are we going to weigh it? And so as... Um, Hemingway said, uh, you can't drain that creative well completely. You, you have to step away before you, you tap it completely so that it can, can replenish. And so he stepped away from this seemingly unsolvable problem and, and took a bath. And in taking a bath, he discovered displacement. Eureka! And I think that's where this problem lies. Instead of as I said, Nash's equilibrium, instead of us saying, no, Dawkins, Harris, you're wrong. Same as some of these extremists like uh, Paul of Tarsus, um, Billy Graham, these individuals on either side that are certain that they have the answers. Well, those are the worst forecasters, I've told you. The people with the greatest doubt, especially in their own theories, end up being uh, the most beneficial because it may be A, it may be B, it may be a combination A and B. Maybe we don't ask the right questions. Maybe we're not ready for the answers. But it's in that doubting with with the desire, the thirst for knowledge, for understanding. It's that philosophia. It's the love of wisdom. It's, it's like I said, sophistry. Sophistry has a bad name today, but sophos is intelligent. So sophistry is just trying to be intelligent, right? You don't abuse sophistry, but same as uh, Dawkins, I think we have the same problem here. There may be some people who have abused 
sophistry in the past to argue for something they don't even believe in. But I think for the most part, arguing intelligently uh, in the service of wisdom, how can that be wrong? And how do you get to wisdom without understanding all of the possibilities and the pitfalls, the potentialities lie, as Carl Jung said, sometimes, just sometimes, we need to leave reason so that we can explore the sense and the nonsense. And I'll leave it at that because that was the one comment that... uh, Richard Dawkins thought was profound. He's like, well, yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like the guy from 1984 who was trying to, uh, you know, even though he knew two and two didn't equal five. This goes back, I think, to Dostoevsky, or it can even go back even further. This idea that yes, two and two equals four, but sometimes, just sometimes, two and two must equal five. This is this lesson of potential. This is gestalt. And if you drop that little quote from 1984 without explaining what it was meant to teach, what what it was meant to teach is they weren't trying to make someone understand that, yes, two and two is four, but sometimes, just sometimes, you have to have an open mind and understand that sometimes two and two equals five. That's, That's gestalt, meaning... The sum is greater than its parts. That is human nature. But what they were trying to teach was two and two is five, not two and two is four. That's the denial. When we have Dawkins on one side and a religious zealot on the other arguing there is no answer but mine, that's where we fail. Right? That's why I argue the proper position is being agnostic. Right? As the old Taoist um, aphorism goes, right? there's a villager with a son, and his son, uh, he gets his son a horse, and everyone goes, Oh, that's awesome. Your son's got this wonderful horse. And he says, yeah, Maybe so. We'll see. And then the horse runs off, and everyone goes, Oh, that's terrible. And the farmer says, Maybe so. We'll see. And then the horse comes back with a, with a mare. Everyone goes, well, that's wonderful. And the farmer once again says, maybe so, we'll see. Then the army comes to recruit soldiers for the army. And people go, that's not good. Farmer says, maybe so, we'll see. And then his son falls from the horse and breaks his leg. And the farmer says, oh, wow. He's not going to have to serve in the army. Isn't that wonderful? And the farmer, once again, maybe so, we'll see. Right? This idea that we have no idea until we do. Right? To have an open mind, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's Nietzsche's eternal return. That's Amarfati. That's uh, the philosophy of Camus. But I hate to break it to you. It's, it's, Carrying your burden. I could go back to Jesus. Make it even predate him. It's up to you. Right? But I'll leave it at that. Thank you for your time. And uh, I think the biggest takeaway 
is you have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? Uh, moderation in all things, including moderation. 